This is the third episode of the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. This episode will feature Nick Winkleman. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science at the Irish Rugby Federation. He has earned a PhD from Rocky Mountain University with an emphasis in motor learning and sprinting. Nick is formerly the director of education and performance at Exos, where he headed the NFL Combine Prep and worked with athletes from the MLB, NBA, and NHL. In this podcast, we'll cover aspects of the demands of rugby and how to meet these demands through speed training, the weight room, and conditioning, weekly setups for the off-season and the in-season, and the types of monitoring tools that the rugby teams are using, and how they're implementing and making fluctuations in training based on those tools. Thanks, Nick, for coming on to the Athletic Lab uh, Sport Performance Podcast. Um, I appreciate the time you take um, to do this with me today. Can you give the audience a little bit of your coaching background? Um, I think a lot of uh, sport performance coaches kind of know you as the Exos Combine guy, but I think you're, you've done a lot more than that. Um, so if you can kind of explain to the audience what you've done and kind of where you are now. Yeah, John, well, thank, thank you so much for having me on. It's always an honor to, to share information with like-minded individuals. Yeah, so my coaching background, I've been an S&C coach now for just about 15 years. I've worked with every type of athlete, as well as spending almost five years as a personal trainer. So I'd like to consider my background fairly diverse. Uh, if I go back to kind of my very first exposure the strength and conditioning. It was in my undergrad. I went to undergrad at Oregon State University. I was the, I call it the lead personal trainer. I had Dixon Recreation Services there for, for three of the four years. And in that time, I also did internships in professional baseball, working specifically in the rookie leagues with the Pittsburgh Pirates. I also was honored to spend the 2006 season with the Oregon State Beaver baseball team that won the World Series that year, went on to do it again in 2007, uh, amongst various other S&C-oriented experiences in those years. In 2006, I interned at Athletes Performance, now Exos, and was hired just about a month before that internship ended. So in, in starting to work there, really was a jack-of-all-trades, in terms of SNC, I think all SNC coaches probably going to be getting something like that. Where I worked across the NFL, NHL, soccer, worked a lot with the military, really all types of athletes, considering the fact that the kind of in season at Exos was the off season of really every professional and amateur sport. Uh, and working there, inevitably, I, I gained two primary roles that, as you said, I'm probably most noted for, one of them being our director of education, overseeing all of our mentorship and external education courses, including the online XPS that we created before I left, and then primarily focusing on NFL combine development and NFL offseason is really probably where I, I cut my teeth in terms of my high performance experience. Uh, as of four months ago, five months ago now, I have since moved to Dublin, Ireland, and have taken a new post with the Irish Rugby Football Union, where I'm the head of athletic performance and science, and I have the honor of supporting our S&C and sports science initiatives across men and women, 15s and 7s, not only for our national teams, but all the way down to our four provincial teams, which all play within the Pro 12 and compete in the Heineken Cup, as well as all of those four teams making up the green jersey or making up our national team. So really, I'm, I'm one part high performance coach and then the other part coach educator and that's very similar with what I did at Exos and also very similar with what I'm able to do now in Ireland. Yeah, it's it sounds like you're you've kind of done quite a bit there in your career so far and you know looking to do more. What I guess what's the uh, the main difference between your change between say a private facility and athletes performance slash Exos and now with a more uh, say structured, I don't want to say structured organization, but say a team setting. 
Yeah, I think the substance of what I was doing at Exos is in many ways similar, meaning my ability to work day in, day out with athletes and support all of their athletic initiatives, as well as being able to support coaches around their coaching initiatives across all elements of high-performance sport and coaching methodology. In that regard, it's similar. But if we look at what all of those efforts are going towards, at Exos, it very much so I was operating in an acute environment. I was working with athletes for 48 weeks, but once they were gone, they were gone until we saw the next season. When I was working with coaches, I was only working with them for four to five days. And when they were gone, they were gone unless they came back to another phase. Conversely now, I'm able to apply those same efforts, but now they are going towards a central goal and one that is now long-term and ongoing. So I still get to develop and support coaches, but I get to do that as long as they'll have me here in Ireland across our national and our provincial heads of athletic performance. Similarly, all of those efforts through my direct work with the coaches, but also my direct work with the athletes is going towards, I'd say two things. Number one, it's cultivating the sport in the country and cultivating a high quality, high performance environment from young to elite athletes. But at the end of the day, it's central that it's a high performance sport. It's about winning. It's about putting athletes in the best position to have high longevity, high career success, and allow the green jersey and the four provincial teams to win at the highest level and hopefully win consistently. Yeah, so you mentioned that you've been there for about five months now, so nearly half a year. Um, what what are kind of some of your expectations or your main focus within that first year with the team? Yeah, one thing that's unique about Irish rugby, and I, I don't know how much the listeners would know about rugby, to be honest, I've just been learning that in the last five months, but one thing that's unique about Irish rugby is that we are centralized which means all of the players and all the coaches for the most part, at least the coaches that fall under my remit, are centrally contracted. And the reason that they're centrally contracted is it allows us to provide a greater level of, call it collaborative service for the athletes that are, are operating within this space. So if we look at that, this type of model, the fact that there is cohesiveness across the provinces, up through the national team, it does create a nice affordance for systems. So to answer your question, my emphasis is really about taking all the goodness, because I can't even begin to tell you, the coaches out here are phenomenal. The work ethic of the athletes really is second to none. So when you talk about getting the right people on the bus, the right people are on the bus. What I want to do is make sure the bus has good direction, has good brakes, has good alignment, has a good engine, and has a system, and has a, a map, so to speak, to know where it's going. So my goal really falls around, I would say, three large domains. One domain is the development of our coach education systems. And our coach education systems are gonna fall, call it kind of more global courses and local courses. And what I mean by that is we're gonna be running CPD events so professional development events probably every other month once we get into a full swing, as well as we're going to start to build in, call it organizational learning systems. So that's going to allow us to have platforms where all of our coaches across the different provinces uh, with the national team can share ideas, can collaborate on projects, can share lessons learned, can post problems, and allow other people to weigh in on that. So the key thing for me is that we make learning a continuous process. And if our coaches can continue to benefit from one another, as well as have a platform to drive their learning and their own self-reflection, that at the end of the day is gonna make the largest influence, I believe, to the athletes. So that's a, that's a massive area, John. That's a, it's a big initiative for me. Second to that is we need to create depth. It, we're a small country. We only have so many individuals that play rugby and we can only pull from such a population. Obviously, Gaelic sports, the amateur sports of hurling and football are massive here. So there is, call it competition, but what we tend to find is the athletes that play rugby are probably of a slightly different profile than, as they call it here, GAA. So we have to, though, make sure we are we're capturing all the athletes 
that are capable and want to play rugby. So a big area that I'm working on with my colleague, Mark Kennedy, is basically on our youth athletic development model, making sure that from an athletic performance perspective, we are profiling, we're monitoring, but most importantly, we're supporting and providing the resources for these athletes, you know, let's say right around 16 and up, to make sure that no one is being lost or being dropped through the cracks, so to speak. So we're doing quite a bit of an initiative around making that system more robust to inevitably just give the green jersey more depth. And then finally, the third area, I would say, is around strategic innovation and methodology. So strategic innovation would be our approach to global monitoring through things like GPS, through using a source that we call uh, Kitman. Kitman Labs allows us to do both subjective as well as objective monitoring to support what we're collecting from a GPS perspective, as well as looking at other objective and subjective, call it methodologies, whether it be around monitoring or around training, and making sure that we're operating at the fringe. So anything that revolves around central data collection that increases collective wisdom to allow us to improve best practices at our provinces, as well as with our national team, that falls under my remit. As well as, John, I'm getting out there and coaching. You know, I basically want everyone to see me as their assistant coach. So I'm doing quite a bit of speed and agility support all around the country. And a lot of that is going to come in the form of coach education as well. So I know that's probably a little long-winded, but those are the three major categories that I'm looking to make a difference uh, uh, over the time that they'll have me be here. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like a full circle approach, and I think that's probably one of the best ways to do it, especially if you're, um, you know, director of high performance. Um, I think that everything has to be all-encompassing there. Um, and we'll touch on a little bit on the monitoring tools that you're using later on, but I think first, yeah. um, you know, maybe we can talk about what you feel the demands of the sport are, and you did talk about coaching a little bit, how you're maybe prepping uh, say younger athletes versus older athletes um, through sprinting um, or speed work, weight room, and then general conditioning. Um, maybe what tools you're using and how you're uh, how you're progressing them through that. Yeah, gosh, that, that's a big one. So maybe I'll try to start with a thousand foot view, and if there's an aspect of what I share that we want to drill down in, we can we can happily do that. So when it comes to when it comes to rugby, again, you have you know, unlike, well, similar to American football, you have a bunch of individual positions. But I would say that generally the sport is a bit more homogeneous in that the athletes from a physical quality perspective, whether you're a forward, so you're a big upfront guy, spends a lot of time in contact, or you're a back, more of a, of a speedy type athlete, if you would, that has a massive skill demand, both athletes still need to operate within the entire 80 minutes of the game, right? And they're gonna to have to run quite a bit. So what's interesting is, what really intrigued me about the sport is athletes not only need to have an incredible aerobic capacity, they have to have both anaerobic power and anaerobic endurance. If we consider the fact of the matter is, I was just doing an update on some statistics, I believe that our forwards oftentimes can be engaged with as many as, as 30 some rucks. So for those that aren't familiar with the sport, that's basically where an athlete on your team is tackled and one of the big guys have to come over the tackle and push back all the other people that are trying to steal the ball. So there's a massive amount of contact and physical trauma that makes anaerobic endurance and anaerobic capacity quite important. At the same time, many of our forwards are going to be weighing north of 105 to 110 kilos, so in many cases, 230 to 250 pounds. So you have these big, robust athletes. Think of an American football player alignment having to, you know, in some cases, cover two to, to four K kilometers in a match at the same time as to go into contact 30-something times. So to bolster that strength, power, size is critical for that physical resilience. In terms of the speed demands, you know, the sport is constantly demanding agility, especially change of direction and reactive agility, so reactive decision-based change of direction. And because the athletes have to move up and down the line, they can only pass backwards. There's a lot of lateral movement, both offensively, what we call attack, 
and defensively. So agility is central to the tenant of the game. I would say it's even more robust across all of the 15 players on either side than it is in American football. And then finally, from a sprint ability perspective, most of the sprint efforts are only going to be really two and a half to five meters, upwards of 10 meters. In at least 15s, the speed that they generate, while there's a high rate of force development, they don't tend to get up to maximal velocity very often. But, as you might imagine, when an athlete does break the line, and as you say, find space or exploit space, if I'm a back with the ball and I'm trying to score a try, which is our equivalent of a touchdown, I need to be able to exploit that space and, and thus run fast and run at maximal velocity. So we tend to say this, while maximal velocity doesn't happen that often in the game of rugby, when it does, it's pretty important. So that's why for us, it's, it's a critical quality still to train from the standpoint of we have to be able to exploit space and also running is a huge part of the conditioning element and the accumulation of volume within a given week. Thus, the athletes have to be able to tolerate that. So just in that description, I would say every quality that I just mentioned there is in some capacity equally important. They all play a role in some facet of the game. So when we look at our young athletes, if we're talking a 16, a 17, and an 18-year-old, I would say the emphasis falls into three primary buckets. From a conditioning perspective, we're trying to build a very robust aerobic base. These athletes have to be able to tolerate a fairly high training load. If we look at on feet from kind of walking all the way up to high speed running, we'll see accumulation of anywhere between 18 to in some cases 20 kilometers. That would be including training as well as a match on the weekend. So they have to be able to tolerate all of that training volume on top of gym sessions. So that takes a massive aerobic base. On top of that, there's a real huge push, huge push to get from, I would say, young all the way to our elite athletes to get a lot of the anaerobic work, whether it be anaerobic capacity, anaerobic power, call it the specific energy system of the game, to get that through practice itself. So we, you'll hear the common terms of conditioning games or small-sided games, and that's where, and I don't want to jump ahead, but that's where GPS becomes critical. Because if we know the distances, the time we're spending in each of our speed zones, our average meters per minute we're covering during worst case scenarios in a game, so on and so forth, that starts to allow us, if you would, to grade drills or grade games for their distance and their overall intensity and map that back to the actual demands of the game itself. And that creates both decision-making and physiological context. So anytime we can get the decision-making of the game and the physiology of the game married up within the context of practice, that's gonna be key. So while we're gonna have skill-based practices, when we have a practice that's meant to impart a greater physiological load, we want that to be really where most of the conditioning happens. Now, what's interesting about GPS is we can see if an athlete achieved those conditioning objectives, those anaerobic capacity or anaerobic power objectives in practice. If they didn't, then with real-time GPS, we could have them do what they call here a top-up session at the end of practice and maybe do some additional conditioning. The other bits that you'll hear oftentimes mentioned when it comes to aerobic and anaerobic conditioning, and these were really popularized by Dan Baker and some of the, the, the guys coming out of the Edith County University, that's your, your mass, your maximal aerobic speed type work, as well as some of the work of Martin Boucher, so 3015 and intermittent sprinting type work where there might be a bit more change of direction and a bit more of an anaerobic emphasis. So if you kind of take those linear-based conditioning assessments and conditioning sessions mapped with conditioning games on top of just building that aerobic base through the overall accumulation of training, that's going to be the key areas from a conditioning perspective. And I would argue that those themes progressively grow in terms of workload and intensity as they go from a young athlete to rugby minis all the way up to elite individuals. When it comes to the weight room, we have three major tenets. 
it initially it's about creating size and strength and it's not size or strength but it's size and strength in a sport that has big guys running in excess of three kilometers in a match these guys have to have high levels of relative strength so that's why we have the nutritionists with all of our squads because not only when an athlete's put it on weight one we want it to be a slow gradual build because we know if weight is put on too quickly it puts too much strain on the soft tissue so we really monitor are they gaining weight and are the appropriate changes in strength accompanying those weight gains to ensure that relative strength is at least being maintained if not improved and again this has really been pushed forward by it's again baker and others as our athletes get older and thus as their strength profile gets closer and closer to them, let's say in the case of the squat, squatting 1.6 to two times their body weight in some form or fashion of a back or a box type squat, then we start to see power, power, power becoming exponentially more important. You'll see two prime, three primary methodologies for what I would call speed strength and strength speed. That's the common terminology we use over here. You'll see Olympic lifting in some of, some of our provinces. You'll also see if you would, loaded squat jumps, which is quite popular in Iraq. Many of those programs that are doing either Olympic lifting or loaded squat jumps are utilizing velocity-based training. So we are looking at velocity and speed on the bar, even with some of the younger academy athletes to ensure we are getting the velocities that we desire. I think we really leverage the work of some of the reviews of Eamon Flanagan, the work of Brian Mann and various others in that place to drive some of that, that methodology as well as Dan Baker, again, is doing quite a bit of, of high-quality work there. So if I, if I review, we have the conditioning that I've talked about. We have strength, power, hypertrophy, really relative strength, relative power being the key emphasis for the young athletes as well as the elite. And I would then say this third category is the bridge between the weight room and the pitch, and that's our movement skill development. And that's probably the area that I think the sport in general, independent of Ireland, just the sport of rugby in general is really calling out for best practices around the development of speed, agility, acceleration, max velocity, and really emphasizing quality of movement. Because John, as I'm sure you can appreciate, with these guys spending so much time in contact and under the bar from a strength power hypertrophy perspective, managing quality of movement with effective recovery, load monitoring, and just good quality movement skill development and coaching is central to keeping the coordination and the quality of that coordination alive. So. I think in broad strokes, that kind of covers the three major domains of the strength conditioning methodology. We obviously then have to support that with the skill of the game and the recovery, which includes your nutrition and everything around medical. Yeah, yeah, and you touched on uh, you know agility a little bit uh, earlier in the question and, and then later on as well. And I always think that's an interesting topic when, when it comes to, say, field and court sports. And in terms of agility, uh, say the progression of agility, are you... Uh, say using more change of direction with less reaction and then moving towards more reaction game-like decisions um, or you would, are you incorporating game-like decisions from the get-go? It's a really good question. I remember there was a quote, I think it came out of uh, Coach Vern Gambetta's last, last book and it was something to the effect of you know, reaction and decision-making should be introduced early and often. And I would be, I'd put my hand up and say, I fall into that camp. So if you were to come to my agility sessions that I run, I would say there's always going to be a core, call it closed, movement skill that we're going to be working on, whether it be cutting and shuffling, backpedal, crossover, drop step, open step, or some variation of those movements. They're, they're usually, especially in the early phases of an agility program being introduced into a rugby program, we are going to have some level of a closed drill being the emphasis point. Now, I would say that I program that drill, John, the same reason you program the back squat and the front squat in the weight room. I'm looking to develop, quite literally, physical resilience and rate of force development, true speed strength in those movement patterns. So I'm looking to impart a volume load that will allow a physical, a physiological change in addition to providing me as their coach with the opportunity to impart coaching cues, coaching direction, but at the same time, give them time to go through exploration, 
and guided learning to try to figure out if you would solve the movement problem. Now, with every one of those closed skills, I would venture to say that I am going to look to integrate that closed skill into some decision-based drill or agility-oriented game, which again would involve reaction. Our simplest drills that we will use virtually in every agility session will be mirroring, right? So athlete A is the leader, athlete B is the follower. We could do mirroring where you go from a back pedal to a jog, working on your forward and backward decelerations or your transitions. We could do that side to side from a shuffling perspective. Again, athlete A is mirroring athlete B. We could bring that into more of a, a free form where we have a five meter distance and athlete A and B, athlete A in this case is the leader, can do whatever they want. They can shuffle, they can cut, they can turn, they can rotate, and the other person has to stay right in front of them using whatever movement strategies they feel are best, they're best equipped for. And inevitably though, I would call that general movement development and general decision making. And what I mean by general decision making is as follows. When the athlete plays rugby, when the athlete practices rugby, they're constantly being challenged to make context specific decisions. They're having to read not only the opponents, but they're also having to read the, the play. They're having to read the, the shape of the game, as they say over here, on top of thinking about what play, if there is a play, my side is running. So there's quite a bit going on which can, if you would, clog the decision-making engine. So with the work that I do with athletes, I'm trying to work on one specific category of decision-making primarily, and that is their ability to read an opponent's body. I want the athletes that I'm working with to get very good at responding to an athlete in front of them going forward, back, left, right, up, down, rotating to the left, rotating to the right. Because I believe if we can continue to consolidate an athlete's ability to read an opponent's body, thus picking up on the earliest movement sign, allowing them then to anticipate should they go left, should they go right, should they go into contact, should they pass. I believe if we can continue to make that decision-making process more robust, it allows them then to focus more on other elements of the game. Maybe a secondary opponent. Maybe there's space to the left and to the right. It allows them to see, if you would, a wider scope or a wider view of the field itself. It allows them to pick up on how the play is developing because they don't have to spend so much time looking or focusing on the person in front of them because that decision-making aspect has been consolidated because of the work that we're so, Long story short, I have a movement structure that goes from single movement skills into movement sequences into movement scenarios, which start to involve the ball in the game itself. Each of those is made up of single movement patterns that we will work on in a closed environment, scaffolding up to more open decision-based environments. But there's always a progression of both, John, that are progressing through my sessions. Yeah, I think that that answered the question uh, pretty completely there. And so to maybe uh, move in uh, in terms of, say, putting your program, say, under the microscope in terms of like you kind of gave a very general overview of what, what things you're doing, maybe describe a weekly setup for uh, preseason and then maybe what it looks like in season where you're changing things maybe potentially based off of fatigue um, or based off of availability of athletes and so on. Yeah, so what's really interesting is that's the question I've got to ask over the last, uh, the opportunity to ask over the last five months. And with four provinces as well as a full-time sevens program, I'm able to see a lot of different approaches to that. And what I'm happy to report is everyone has a phenomenal methodology, and there's probably more coherence rather than more similarity across our different versions and divisions of the game than there's differences. So I'll give you one overview that probably is somewhat representative of all of our provinces that are in their preseason right now, preparing for the Pro 12, and that is as follows. They basically run a two-on, for the most part, model. 
So you'll train on Monday and Tuesday, have Wednesday off, it'll be a recovery day. There might be some light work odds, definitely time to spend with the physio, but it's very much so gonna be a rest and recovery day. And then you'll have Thursday and Friday, and then the weekend might have some work odds, but for the most part, will be rest and recovery. When we look at Monday, Monday is typically going to be the, at least the first big lower body workout of the week. It will typically happen in the morning. It will be the first thing that the athletes are gonna go through. If we look at what happens from a lower body perspective, I think you would find that in the current methodology, there's one of three movements, for the most part, selected. You're gonna see back squatting with to a box. Now, they don't sit on the box, John. They use it as an assessment of height. So our coaches are not only chasing load, but they're also chasing range of motion. And I think each of our provinces do quite a good job of monitoring and managing that. You know, very low incidence of any squat-related issues with how they manage it, so credit to them. Athletes that can't do that can go into a front squat. You'll see that, it's probably more of a rare movement as well as athletes that can't have any loading on the shoulders, maybe it's because they have an old injury or a new injury, will go through usually some kind of a trap bar type deadlift. I'd say this, you're not gonna see a lot of straight bar deadlifting being done, and all of your single leg and split and auxiliary work is used, but not as a primary form of loading. Many of our coaches, if it's more of a, call it strength speed type day, We'll use gym aware to monitor velocity. And I'm probably not in a position to comment on exactly what velocities they're looking for. That's an all honesty area I'm continuing to dig into, but they'll, they'll monitor velocity. And if it's a day where they're not doing that, then it'll just be straight percent of, of load. And typically they're using your relative load type indicators. So Monday's gonna be strength. I would say normally there's, there's two movements, there's two primary movements. So you might have your primary squat and then your secondary type bench press and then some auxiliary work. Our lifts are 45 minutes to an hour. There's not a lot of fluff and really it is focused on the primary lifts. In an afternoon scenario, you're gonna see what we might call units or skill-based rugby. So while there could be a conditioning element, it's normally gonna be more aerobic and accumulative, really the emphasis is gonna be more skill-based. And during some weeks, they may utilize that Monday afternoon using some kind of conditioning but it wouldn't be that taxing because of the lower body lift in the morning. When you then look at Tuesday, Tuesday is gonna be, for some clubs, it's gonna be their big bench press day. So you have a bench press and a lot of pull-ups, so a lot of pulling, balancing, pushing, that's gonna be in the morning. And again, you have strength, as well as strength speed, as well as speed strength oriented sessions. In the off season, very much so in the preseason rather, it's gonna be probably strength and strength speed. So on the heavier side is gonna be the emphasis to regain size and bolster that with strength because we have the time. The afternoon on that session is gonna be the heavy, uh, the first of what could be two heavy conditioning days. So obviously they would have had time for the legs to recover. The morning didn't taxate the legs. So it'd be a big conditioning game oriented type session. And our coaches are phenomenal at managing that. Typically 45 to 60 minutes is gonna be the length of time in that session. Now mind you, there's nutrition, there's program recovery, there's education, there's unit meetings, position meetings, all that kind of stuff wrapping that together. Wednesday's recovery. Then what you'll see for most in the preseason, Thursday is gonna be another kind of big strength day. You might see the theme go a bit more towards strength speed. So if there was gonna be a big power element, you'd likely see that happen on the Thursday. Again, it's gonna either be a squat jump oriented type movement, loaded squat jump in the rack using safety pins or and or some kind of a, an Olympic lift. That would then be supported typically with either squatting again, so typically another heavy squat and or they'll do the power work in some kind of auxiliary work. So that's your step ups, your single leg, lateral lunges, maybe a gambetta, leg circuit, and all the while they might be adding in your auxiliary rotational stability, rotational power, so on and so forth. And then finally, that afternoon is likely gonna be a repeat of Monday, unit skill work. They might do more team-oriented work, so the installment of plays, and again, there might be a conditioning element, just depends on how they were loaded in the morning. And then finally on Friday, you're gonna see upper body-oriented type work, and then the afternoon probably is gonna be again another, another conditioning type dose. 
So with, with complete transparency, John, I'm still learning in that regard how they balance all of the, the different units, but I think that is a fair explanation from what I've seen in terms of how they program. Very much so, that maps to how I would have programmed with our NFL athletes in an offseason, albeit just some small, uh, some small differences. So overall, that's what the in-season is going to look like. Or excuse me, the preseason. Now, if we jump to in-season, let's pretend we're dealing with a Saturday game. Okay, so they're playing on Saturday. Some of the volume, load, intensity during the week would likely depend on if it's an away or a home game. Obviously, if it's an away game, they might have to travel a day early, which starts to make the schedule look as if it's a Friday home game. But that's that's for another day. So let's assume it's a home game and it's a Saturday. So Monday is typically going to be a fairly a fairly. If they're going to have a big lift, it's going to happen on Monday. The afternoon is going to be the installment of any skill work, teamwork. They're probably going to do quite a bit of film work to look at the attack and the defense of the upcoming team. Tuesday is oftentimes going to be an upper body oriented workout, so lower body heavy strength was on that Monday. Upper body strength is going to be on Tuesday. Again, that Tuesday afternoon is going to be the heaviest rugby session of the week. That's where the installment of conditioning games, pop-ups, and just ensuring that the physiology required is being per the norm or even potentially pushed up a little bit higher depending on the importance of the game on that weekend it was playing. Wednesday is going to be recovery. Thursday, you're likely going to see, for most, that's where it's an installment of power. So whether it be Olympic lifting, some light speed strength, or for some, it's going to be more of your auxiliary day. So single leg, split leg, low intensity, but making sure that we're checking all the box from a movement and a movement quality perspective. But usually some level of power is going to be in there. And if it's a non-23, so if it's a non-traveling or a non-starting athlete, you could see another top-up session for lower body strength, similar to what you would have seen on that Monday. That afternoon is going to be light, so units-based, team-based, and again, probably the installment of any plays, looking at teamwork and team plays. And then on your Friday, it's going to be light, it's going to be fresh. You might have your non-starters, again, do another upper body workout. Your starters aren't likely to do anything. They might do a little bit of light power, but probably pretty rare. And then the afternoon is what they call the captain's run. So it's led by the captain. Again, it's installment of plays, looking at set pieces, so lineouts, scrums, ensuring everyone knows what they need to do on the side of attack, one man, one job, one team as well as looking at some of the defensive faces that they could face on the weekend and Saturday they play. Yeah, so it looks like the the main difference in terms of preseason to in-season is just a the slight taper effect that you guys are looking for within the week leading up to a game. Um, and, yeah, you're, you're really looking at two, two big hits of lower body and two big hits of upper body from the standpoint of the weight room during the, during the, the preseason. And you're really looking at one and one primarily in season but what you'll find is because it's so long some of these players john will with with international test matches will play 30 games most of them will be 25 on average but upwards of 30 so they're not going to play every week they will rotate players imagine in the nfl if you didn't have your starting left guard right you're starting left tackle that's kind of how it works so depth is critical so they will have times where they get increased volume load to develop or repair but for the most part yeah you're having the volume of, of load on those main lists yeah i think that's uh you did a pretty nice job at explaining you know exactly uh you know what you, what you guys are potentially doing within the week so i think that's very very interesting uh in terms of what you guys are doing and and honestly it wasn't in terms of the weekly setup not too different um, from when I, when Mike and I had worked in Vancouver, um, obviously the the goals are slightly different, but in terms of the weekly setup, um, you know, very very similar. Um, and you touched on previously some monitoring tools, whether it be say GPS, uh, VBT, um, or maybe anything else you're using. Um, how are you integrating that with the team? So maybe from a logistics standpoint. Yeah. Uh, um, and I guess uh, go go ahead with the logistics standpoint, and then I'll expand on the question. Yeah. So from a logistic perspective, we're using two primary tools. We are using Kitman Labs, and we are using GPS. And GPS, some of our teams use Catapult, some of our teams use 
stat sports and then centrally we utilize a prozone uh, oriented system to aggregate it all together so if you can imagine the day in the life of an athlete is they're going to wake up some of the teams send out a push notification other ones have ipads at the facility for them to go through their subjective monitoring so they're going to be able to select what muscles are sore what level they're sore how they slept how they're feeling levels of energy we could go on and on but they have their basics of subjective monitoring with the key ones being around sleep around energy and around overall soreness and where that soreness is so there in terms of kitman we also have some objective monitors so we'll look at things like your sit and reach closed chain ankle dorsiflexion internal external rotation in the shoulder in the hip some of our clubs are utilizing a nordic of sorts whether it be a nord board or similar type device and utilizing that not only with healthy but obviously with your return to perform or return to play type athletes so we have a balance of objective and subjective monitors some of our clubs will also use a counter movement jump i wouldn't say that is all the way through but some of them will use that in some capacity and we're also seeing some various isometric oriented squat pulls iso squats and iso squats uh, midside pulls being used in various areas but i wouldn't say that that's being done on a day-to-day basis everywhere from a gps perspective we are lucky enough where every for the most part every academy and elite player on our pro teams is wearing gps for every session on the pitch whether it be rugby or conditioning or balance of both and with that we're looking at a lot of your standard metrics we're looking at total distance we're looking at relative intensity across those distances so kind of looking at your high speed your moderate and your low speed oriented running we're looking at your meters per minute obviously within those all that information around distance positioning velocity and acceleration is central to our methodology to make sense of are we doing exactly what we are planning to do and get a sense of the overall training load that is actually being imparted on the athlete versus their perception of that training load which we gain two ways i already shared one of them that's through kitman which is kind of retrospectively giving them a sense of how am i feeling how the day go how am i looking for today but we also use workload for those that are not familiar with workload at least in the way that i am describing it from the standpoint of every session whether it be on the pitch or be in the weight room our coaches are collecting an rpe value from that rpe it is multiplied by the amount of time that session took all of that information gets put in the kitten so we're able to actually monitor workload which is again is simply rpe perception of the workload right times time and what we're starting to do in some of our clubs i say all of our clubs in some capacity are doing this are starting to use or already are using your tim gabbitt excuse me tim gabbitt's train stress balance and looking at your acute versus your chronic workloads understanding that it's not necessarily your workload right that you're under but it's the rapid change or increase in that workload that to me what if you would likely triggers an injury so gps kitman and utilizing those rpe and time for for workload using various ways of looking at the data that i would say john is a fair description of how we are attacking monitoring and from the standpoint of subjective and objective yeah i th- <clears throat> i think you mentioned uh one of those things being uh, i think you call it the tim gabbett method i've i had just heard about that and I've, i don't know how long it's been around but i found that super interesting in terms of the acute slash chronic fatigue and and it's not necessarily yeah. uh you know how much fatigue but it's the drastic change in the fatigue that may be that may be causing these potential injuries um and yeah, I would say for your listeners, just so it's sorry to cut you off, so I don't forget, I would, I would recommend he wrote a really nice paper this year. It's called The Training Injury Prevention Paradox Should Athletes Be Training Smarter and Harder? And that's a very nice paper that summarizes a lot of his work that preceded it, that goes, goes into exactly how do you do it, how should, what data should you use 
to assess chronic versus acute workload and provides nice theoretical backing. So for the listeners, that would be a good place to start if they're interested. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. And I think uh, I'm probably going to take a look at that uh, probably after we get off this call. Um, so in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, going back to the monitoring tools, um, you know, how you're applying those from a day-to-day, week-to-week standpoint, you know, if, if you've had enough time to kind of integrate those things yet, and maybe how you're using them to alter training a little bit. Yeah. So, again, with full transparency, I don't have a personal opinion on it yet. And I haven't been, I haven't been stuck in long enough to make one. I have a lot of ideas, and I'm seeing it being done quite well, but I'm still starting to generate my own opinions. So what I can speak to is at least how it's being used and how I think it's intelligently being used. So when it comes to the Kitman, obviously the, the questions that we're asking the athlete to answer subjectively and the objective markers that we're asking them to perform to get an, ass- an assessment to back up what they're saying subjectively or to see if what they're feeling subjectively is making a physical impact on markers that we deem important, that allows a conversation to, ha- to happen. And I think that's the best way to think of it, that this, this, mor- this morning-oriented work, this morning-oriented work is really meant to give us an understanding of, is the athlete ready? How are they feeling? Even if their objective metrics are good, is that backed up with how they're answering these questions, where they're sore? So it's always followed up with a conversation and encouraging any additional follow-up interaction or modification. If an athlete is extremely sore and we have a high-level conditioning session planned in the afternoon that has a lot of change of direction, they may either modify the amount of volume, switch it to more of a straight-line running session to decrease the amount of change of direction, or if it was really extreme, obviously they might change the session altogether. But they're really basing that on how the athlete's feeling, what needs to be done that week is an important competition, is it better off just allowing them to take the session off or do they need to put in the work? All that's being bolstered or backed up against kind of how they're feeling. Uh, when it comes to the GPS, it, it's at this point, <laughs> our coaches can write a session, hand it to the GPS analyst. The analyst can really come back and give them an indication of, okay, based on the drills that you selected, knowing that the session is going to last an hour, Here's how many meters we should run. Here's roughly how many meters should be run in each of our bands. And here's how many high intensity periods. Here's roughly what the meters per minute should be in those. And here's roughly how long they should last based on what we see in the game in terms of our worst case scenarios, so to speak. So at this point, they're able to future proof kind of what should happen in the session. And this is where I think Head coaches, and I don't want to speak for all NFL head coaches because that would be unfair, but I think for the most part, the head coaches in rugby are much farther along in their understanding and appreciation for what GPS can do. And where they really do a nice job is they're depending on the head of athletic performance and GPS analyst to say, hey, put us on a clock. Let us know when 10 minutes is up for this period. That's what we agreed to. So they really try to be true to the schedule so that they're not all of a sudden running a drill for twice as long as they should. So the reason I share that is it allows our GPS analysts, our head of athletic performance, to work on the pitch with the head coach real time to ensure that the training volume load is exactly as was prescribed and make any modifications retrospectively and have that feed into subsequent sessions. So I I would say that's really how it's a very fluid area and there's some people that I know that are vehemently against utilizing GPS I think how we're utilizing GPS is it's basic it's intelligent and it is not trying to get more than what the data can tell you it's using it for where it's valid and reliable just to more than anything make sure that we are doing what we state we want to do to get the physiological responses we desire yeah, um, it, it sounds like you guys are, you know, using some obviously validated tools and using them well, and not, you not, you know, not overusing them. Um, and I think that's. I think that's a fair. That's a very fair. Yeah, and I, I think uh, where maybe some coaches not maybe not go wrong, but they they tend to overuse a lot of the technology or tools that they are given or being, or maybe buy because they feel like they need to. And I think that's. Uh, yeah, I just think that. Yeah, what I love about our coaches, not to cut you off, is they're constantly 
looking for less, right? What are, what's the least amount of variables that are the most important that allow us to, to guide better decision making, to optimize performance first and foremost, and reduce the likelihood of injury. And I think that thought process really is fluid throughout every corner of the sport here. And the other thing, sorry, that I just want to add to that, John, is with the trading stress balance. Again, for those that are unfamiliar, basically just imagine you're monitoring those workloads. You're monitoring RP times time. It's aggregating what's happening on the pitch, what's happening in the weight room. And obviously, you can look at those independently as well. And what Tim Gabbitt has done is basically start to identify these ratios, whereby if the ratio starts to skew one direction, it says that your training load is going down to potentially a point where you're going to have a detraining effect or it's also spiking up where you're putting them under a rapid increase in training load. So imagine an athlete coming off an injury or an athlete coming off a break. Those are going to be the times where they're most susceptible for too quick of a rise in what we call acute load. So in doing so, he provides bands that basically you want to stay in to optimize this ratio of acute and chronic. So you can, you can exponentially increase the amount of workload the athletes are going through over time to, to a degree, right? But it just guides you on how fast you should do that. And again, once you have your GPS and you know, can start to, if you would, predict what your workloads would look like, it allows you once again to do a better job of future-proofing what your program should do, utilizing the data once you've actually gone through that to validate, okay, did we prescribe the volume that we thought we, we should have and did, start to use that to calibrate your system, and inevitably that training stress balance, acute chronic, provides a really nice spotlight to ensure that what you're doing in the subsequent week isn't going to put any individual over the edge, so to speak. Yeah, um, and so to kind of uh, you know wrap up here, um, I, I know you're now in Ireland, um, but maybe give the listeners um, you know some maybe an, uh, any way to contact you via Twitter, email, or anything you'd prefer. And then if you are doing any you know speaking engagements, whether it be overseas or or coming back to the U.S. anytime soon. Yeah. So probably at, at this point. The, the best way to interact with me is one of one or more of three ways, and that is Twitter, so I'm at Nick Winkleman, uh, Facebook. I don't think I can accept any more people, but I, I post everything publicly on there so you can follow that, and I kind of keep that abreast of what I'm doing, so presentations being one of those areas. And then LinkedIn. I'm happy to expand LinkedIn as much as possible, so I always accept people, so you can direct message me through Twitter through LinkedIn and happy to get in contact from that regard. And I try to keep all of those, especially Twitter, updated with where I'm at, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, because I'm all about sharing information. In terms of speaking, John, I'm doing quite a bit over the next couple of months in in Europe. The specific conference names, a lot of it's more private-based stuff. I, I will stay on the Perform Better circuit, at least as far as I know, if Chris Poyer keeps inviting me back. So I should be back for the Perform Better circuit next year and I'll, I'll keep kind of my social media streams updated with any other big conferences that I'm doing definitely have plenty in the queue right now but some details still getting worked out all right Nick well again thanks for very much for coming on and uh, I know our listeners will appreciate a lot of the information and content that you kind of gave out today yeah no problem thank you so much for having me John